Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll take a walk across the jazz landscape of the mountains when Ed Bride talks to us about the Berkshire jazz sprawl happening all week long. And we'll hear about the birth of the heavenly body closest to us all with Mr. Universe, Dr. Salman Hamid, and get into the origins of the moon. Tomorrow, November 7th, is Election Day. Seven cities in Western Mass have contested mayoral races. We've done our best to talk with each of the candidates involved in those races. And we have one last entry in that endeavor today as we speak with the Chicopee mayoral hopeful Del Marina Lopez. We've been doing our darndest here on the Fabulous 413 to talk to all of the candidates running for mayor in the four counties of Western Mass, and we will continue this on the last day before Election Day, which is tomorrow. Del Marina Lopez is an advocate and educator and current city councilor for Ward 3 in Chicopee. Del Marina was the youngest person to serve as an intern for the governor of Massachusetts Western Mass office at just 16 years old. She graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Criminal Justice from Bay Path University and a Juris Doctor from Western New England University School of Law. She's the founder of Del Marina Lopez Consulting, and while on city council, she's been a part of and chair for several municipal committees, including the Water Resource Committee, the Recreation Committee, Education Committee and Public Safety Committees. Del Marina Lopez was the first person of color elected to the council in Chicopee and first woman in over a decade as she joins us here along with NEPM reporter Nirvani Williams who's been covering the Chicopee mayoral race for the NEPM newsroom. Del Marina Lopez is running for mayor of Chicopee tomorrow. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're running against the incumbent mayor of Chicopee, John View, who's been mayor since 2020. Let's start off with the basics. Why do you want to be the mayor? So I've been on the city council for the past two years, and I'm not a career politician by any means. I'm an attorney. I have my own consultancy firm. There's no political gain in this for me. This is about my community. And during my time on the council, I witnessed firsthand how badly we needed representation that was A, real leadership, and B, cared about the residents first. Um, You know, the incumbent mayor was a city councilor for 16 years and has now been the mayor for the past four years. And not much has gotten done in the last 20 years. And that's definition career politician, right? Like Mm -hmm. we need some change. We need someone who doesn't have skin in the game in that way. You know, when you've been on with your buddies for 20 years, you get kind of stagnant and you get too comfortable. And it's not about the people anymore. It's not about the residents. We've had numerous issues on the council where residents have been unhappy with zoning proposals, where they've been unhappy with ordinances or how, you know, certain departments are are doing their work. And I'm thankful for all the work that the city employees do, but we absolutely need a leader who is going to take the rein on things. And you have to be transparent and people should know where their dollars are being spent. You know, the current administration has put millions and millions and millions in like our stabilization fund. And that doesn't make any sense. The money that comes in from the taxpayers is not for us to have it sit in a bank. We're not a bank. We should have some stabilization fund, sure, but not over $20 million. That's ridiculous. We should be using that money to fix our roads. We should be using our money to pay our police officers. You know, we should be using that money to pay our teachers and our paras. Our police officers, we don't have enough. And we don't have enough because we can't attract any new talent because we're the lowest paying in the area. And when you compare us to the next lowest paying, a starting officer makes 26 percent less than the next lowest paying department in the area. How are we ever going to attract talent? And then when we do attract a few, they go through our academy and then they leave our department because they cannot sustain themselves. That's not how we should be running a city. And it starts at the top. A mayor has to take responsibility for that. And I think I can lead the city. I think I can do a much better job leading the city. And I think it's time for some new new blood. Do you think that it's because he's been there for so long and is used to the general slow pace of government that things move so slowly and that being 
relatively new to the council and to the mayoral seat, if should you get it, that you're able to invigorate and perhaps speed up some of these processes. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Sure. Like the minuteness absolutely brings some speed and invigoration. But I think also it's it's personal, right? Like what I bring to the table is energy. I bring diligence to the table. This is who I am as a person. I've shown that on the council. I show that through my work and I'm like ready to serve, ready to lead right at, right at the get. Right. And so the incumbent mayor, it's not personal to me, but it's just it's personal to the city. You may be an okay person as a person, but you're not a good leader. And it's time to let an actual leader lead the city. We're speaking with Delmarina Lopez, who is running for mayor of Chicopee. Election day is tomorrow. We're going to have election night coverage from all over the place with our NEPM reporters like oh, Nirvani oh. Williams and more. Nirvani's been covering the Chicopee mayoral race. Yes. One thing that I really wanted to know was what do you think about the rising opioid and drug use in Chicopee? And, you know, if you get elected for mayor, what are your plans for addressing it? Because there is a high volume of homeless people congregating in tents by the reservoir and using drugs there. I know that that really affects how downtown businesses address what they're doing. So I really wanted to know what your plans for that were. In part, that's a city issue, but in part, that's a nationwide issue and a Massachusetts issue as well. Like That's a state issue. And so there are multiple levels. One of them is working with our state delegation to ensure that we have the funds to be able to provide housing and provide the mental health necessary for folks because it all ropes in, right? Like opioid epidemic is part of it. But at the core, like there are, you know, root issues and the root causes of these issues are often underlying mental health conditions. Oftentimes it's homelessness, some situation that like created like the perfect ticking time bomb for someone. And then they end up in a homeless situation or using drugs. So it's not, you know, it's it's a disease at the end of the day. And it, I don't think anyone wakes up and says, I'm going to use drugs today. I, I think it's a state issue. We have to work with our delegation. But I also believe that as a city, we have to do something about homelessness. And a lot of the residents, as I've, I've knocked on thousands of doors during this campaign season, and as I've knocked on doors, I hear over and over that they're just so tired of seeing panhandlers and that, you know, it makes them feel unsafe. And so part of that, again, is we need more enforcement. We need more officers on our streets so that they can provide resources because it's not about arresting a panhandler. That's not what we're trying to do. Like if somebody's already homeless, we're not going to kick them while they're down. But officers working through our C3 units, community policing means we have resources that already do this work. Our C3 units, I go to the meetings pretty regularly and they happen every week. We have one in the center and one in Willamancet, and I'm a Ward 3 counselor. So that's my, Willamancet is my area. And so at these meetings, we have over 30, 40 organizations that come who serve veterans, who serve homeless populations, all these marginalized uh, populations. During these meetings, we know, like the officers that work in the, the C3 unit, know many of the homeless people by name. And so when they don't see a homeless person for, for a week, they start asking questions. If the person's a veteran, like they'll talk to whoever is there from veteran services and they plug them in. And it's so important for us to be doing that with our C3 unit and expanding those services as a city because I don't think the solution is just build a shelter, house them, and then make it like a reoccurring circle cycle, right? Like that's not what makes sense. It's about actually rehabilitating folks. It's about providing them the resources to get back on their feet, job development, to be able to get a job, job skills, providing them food. Like it's it's more than just a roof over their head. The roof over their head is a starting point. 
Um, but we can do that through our C3 units. And it, it saddens me that the current administration actually pulled all of our officers from the C3 unit. We only have our two sergeants left in the unit because we don't have enough officers to do patrol. You know, we can't say that community policing, policing is our priority if the first thing we do is pull them the moment we don't have enough officers to do traffic stops. I understand that we need traffic patrols. We obviously need more officers. We're, we don't have a full complement. That's not a secret. And we're not doing a good job at all at recruiting and retaining talent. However, the first solution is not take out the officers who are doing the groundwork. So it's undoing a lot of the work because these marginalized communities, it, you have to build trust in order to be able to work with them. We can't do that if we just pull the officers for weeks at a time. You're breaking the trust that you've built. So under my administration, there's no way I would have been okay with us pulling our officers from the C3 unit. That's not okay. That's three bodies. Those are three officers. And they make a huge impact in the community. And honestly, it doesn't really make a dent in the traffic patrol. That doesn't make a dent. So, you know, what's important to me is making sure that our community is taken care of in a holistic way. And that's not happening under this administration. And again, I just feel like it's, you know, this administration is stagnant. They've gotten used to, you know, being able to just coast. And it's time for our city to not coast because coasting is actually causing us to sink. And I will not stand by and watch my city sink just because it doesn't have good leadership. We're speaking with Del Marina Lopez, who's a city councilor for Ward 3 in Chicopee, the ward where you grew up, the Willamancet area, and is running for mayor of Chicopee tomorrow on Election Day. We're here joined by Nirvani Williams from the NEPM News Department, who's been covering this race. We have reached out to your uh, opponent, Mayor John View, and uh, welcomed him as we welcomed all the mayoral candidates in the area onto the show. Some of them have taken us up on it, and some of them have not. The whole nation is in the middle of a housing crisis, and it's not just homelessness. It is definitely like low-income housing. It is middle-income housing and the lack thereof. There is currently a $4 billion plan initiative that was presented by the governor, still needs to be ratified by the rest of the state government, but is a bit of a push towards maybe balancing this incredible inequity that we have in housing. How would you like for your city under your administration to address this? So that's such a loaded question, right? Because when we look at housing, like there are so many layers. For me, the most important thing right now, you know, we welcome other people to come into our city. We have open arms, but I need to take care of my residents. I need to take care of the people who live currently in my city. And that does include the homeless population because they do live in my city, right? And so I do need to be able to provide services and ha make sure that my administration is equipped, fully equipped to provide services um, to folks who are homeless. And again, wrap around like we just spoke about. Um, but when we think about the people who are housed in our city, you know, we think about the seniors. We have a, a very large older adult population. And it is my responsibility as the mayor to make sure that I'm doing right by these seniors and that they can afford to stay in their homes. When they are on fixed incomes and their taxes keep going up and their home value keeps going up, they're not able to afford having food on their table. And to me, that's problematic. We also have a very large veteran population in our city. You know, we have Westover right in our city, and that then means that people decide to stay in our city after serving their time. And we have a very large, and we're very proud of our veteran population. And it brings me pride to have them in our city, but we, I can't just be proud to have them. I also have to support them. And so we currently have, it was recently instated, a tax work-off program for seniors and veterans, but it wasn't thought out well. It wasn't planned out well. Um, it honestly feels like we're exploiting, to a certain extent, the seniors and veterans because they have to work to get some type of tax incentive, some some money reduced from their taxes. And, and to me, that's a slap in the face because let's say if I'm a disabled veteran, for example, I'd 
am disabled. I'm not able to go out and work somewhere. Because of that, that means I'm not able to take advantage of this work off program. That doesn't make sense. And the number of people who are able to take advantage of it is so limited. It's not all encompassing in any way, shape or form. You know, I understand that taxes are high and people don't want their taxes to be higher, but there is a way to balance these things. While on the council, you know, the council decides the rate, the tax rate. I remember during my first tax rate hearing, I asked for the information on how we could potentially take advantage of some of the exemptions. And some of the state allowed exemptions are, for example, if you own the home but don't live in the home, so a landlord that doesn't live in that specific home, your rate could be a certain percent up to 10% higher than what someone who actually lives in their home, what their rate is. So who that affects the most, right, is landlords. And I remember during that meeting, the opposition that I got from some of the other counselors, and, you know, we didn't even have the information. You know, I asked the auditor for the information, and she was like, well, I didn't come prepared for that. And I'm like, what do you mean? So you just expected (laughs) for us to rubber stamp and just say, okay, and not think of creative ways to support our constituency when this is, there are only three exemptions. You should have come with these numbers, right? Again, it's how the city is currently run. Under my leadership, if you're going before the council, you got to have your I's dotted and your T's crossed. Like, you have all the information. Even if they decide to just vote yes or rubber stamp, that's fine, but give them all the information possible. That didn't happen. And also during that meeting, you know, we had one of the counselors, and this is a public record, you can go watch the meeting, say something along the lines of, well, this is why I tell people to vote, because it's important for them to elect people that wouldn't do this because I own a lot of property in the city. And... If my taxes go up, then that means I have to make other people's rent go up. And that was so appalling to me because I'm like, are we here for the best interests of the residents or are we here for our own personal best interests? How are we keeping people in their homes? Like housing is a serious issue. Here we have one way, a solution. We have a way to be able to help individuals, families, seniors stay in their homes. That $100 to them means a whole lot more than it does to a landlord. But yet we're making decisions based on personal interests, even if we take away the personal interest, right? Like, let's assume there's no personal interest. That's not a decision that makes sense for the community. I believe it's the mayor's job to be able to have all that information readily available and have those tough conversations about what we think should happen. That's part of it. You've got to work with the council. Um, and I just I just don't see that happening. It's, it's currently not happening. It needs to happen. We need to do better by our seniors and our veterans so that they can stay in their homes. Um, it, it's it's disrespectful. They've done their time. They've, they've paid their duty to this country. And for them to be struggling to figure out whether they can pay their taxes or put food on their table is a disgrace. On the way, we'll discover the origins of the moon with Mr. Universe Hampshire College's Salman Hamid. And we'll hear jazz resonate across the mountains with Ed Bride, who'll tell us where to stop for the Berkshire Jazz Sprawl. But up next, more with City Councilor Delmarina Lopez, who is running for mayor of Chicopee. We'll talk traffic safety. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Tennessee, Tennessee, Chicopee, Spirit Lake, Grand Lake, Devil's Lake, Crater Lake, Beach Lake, Gotham, Ward 3 City Councilor from Chicopee, Delmarina Lopez, who's running for mayor of Chicopee against the incumbent John View tomorrow on Election Day. The mayor, John View, has been invited on the show as well. We'll have election night coverage on Tuesday night. We're also joined by NEPM News Department's Nirvani Williams. You're the first woman, woman of color on the Chicopee City Council. I know that you really want to see Chicopee's diversity reflected in its leadership. How do you plan on doing that once you get in office? 
part of that is out of my hands, right? Like I would love to see more elected folks who are of color or marginalized communities or women. You know, that would be lovely to see more women on the council. However, the elections are happening and most positions are running unopposed. There's not going to be a lot of change on the council. There's only a couple positions where there are challengers. And so unfortunately, that part is out of my hands. However, I can make sure that, you know, we are being equitable in our hiring practices. And I think, you know, by default, by being the mayor, by being a person of color, by being a woman, it just shows people that they too can do it. I've had a lot of encounters with like young kids recently who are so excited because they're like, we've never seen a woman like you're running for mayor. And I'm like, yes, and you can too. Like it excites me that they see themselves in me. It's time for that too. We can't ignore that. Like we can't pretend like that's not a factor. People should see themselves reflected in their leadership. Our city is growing in diversity every day. And at the top, there should be leadership that reflects that diversity. As a mayor, I have the ability to appoint people on to commissions and boards. So I'm excited to tap into communities of color to make sure that we have more diversity. It'll happen. It's, it's going to be a snowball effect. And I'm really excited that if and when I'm elected the mayor, that people will see that it's possible for them to do it too, that you don't have to be part of the good old boys club. You don't have to have been a 20-year veteran elected official to be the mayor. You can actually come in, bring your fresh ideas, bring in your background and serve, whether that's on the city council, on the school committee, on a board or a commission as the mayor. You know, the possibilities are endless. And I think that this election will show people that. One of the things that got mentioned in your debate on 22 News was that there are a couple of schools in Chicopee on the verge of going into receivership. So what would you like to change in office about the education department in Chicopee to make sure that that doesn't continue happening and to change their trajectory towards a more positive light? This has been a hotly contested topic. And it's public. You can go to the accountability report and you can see that there are we have more than one school in turnaround state. And so turnaround is the step before we end up then in receivership. And we don't want to end up in receivership, but we are in turnaround state. And so I think there are multiple layers on how we address that. One of them is working with the superintendent. I'm really excited to work with Dr. Marcus Ware. It's it's a fresh of breath air. It's new you know, again, newness into the city, injecting some new experience into the city. And so I'm excited to work with him um, so that we can make sure that the way we serve our students is holistic. It needs to be more than just what our teachers are are teaching in the classroom. It's more than just the curriculum. It's about how we engage parents. And, you know, Dr. Ware is already starting to do some of that. I'm really excited to, to work with him to do more of that because I think him and I see I eye to eye about what should happen in our school department. I'm an I should just interrupt that there has been a lot of drama surrounding the superintendency of Chicopee and a lot of the things that you have been saying about uh, entrenched political connections led to that. We won't get into the, 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 the details and weeds, but it's easy to find those details. So continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. It is worth easy noting, to find those worth details. Noting, though, that worth there was noting, but I'm not noting it. A year ago surrounding the superintendent <laughs> of Chicopee. I had to bring it up. Now that we've gotten over that. <laughs> so I'm excited to work with Dr. Ware. I think he was a great choice. And I'm excited for what he's going to do. I'm excited to work with him. I'm I'm an educator, so I understand the needs of the inside of the classroom. But I also understand, like, from both sides. Because I didn't leave school that long ago, right? Like, I've gone through a lot of years of schooling, uh, both in Chicopee Public Schools. I went to elementary, middle, and high school in Chicopee. And I went to Bay Path University and to Western New England School of Law. I've done my my due diligence in terms of being a student. um, And then I'm also an educator. So I, I understand it. I understand it firsthand. And I understand the complexity in recent times, which is a little different. Our schools look very different now than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. 
Um, and it's important to have a, a leader who, who can see it from that lens. Our teachers are underpaid. The teachers union has been advocating for a raise and I personally think it was a political move to give them a, to open it up for one year and to just give them a raise to kind of quiet them for this specific election season. I, I don't think it was a successful political move because at the end of the day that it doesn't actually quiet any teachers. They're still very upset about how they're underpaid and they should be rightfully upset because we are losing teachers left and right in the same way that we're losing police officers. And these are two of the most essential jobs in our city. You know, all of our city workers are important, but if there's something that's really, really important, it's for us to be safe and for us to have good education, right? And so if we're losing them by the boatload, that's a problem. Um, we've we lost a significant number of teachers um, and we opened up our schools this year with over 90 openings. And for a school district our size, over half of those were parents and teachers. And for a school district our size, that's uh, that's outrageous. I think we had almost as much as Springfield and Springfield school department is significantly larger than ours. We can't not address the issue, right? And like this has happened over and over during this this campaign season. We see we hear from my opponent that, you know, Chicopee is strong, Chicopee is great, our, our schools are doing great, everything is fine. We have money in the stabilization account. Everything is great and that's not accurate. You know, as a leader, you have to be transparent about the issues. The issues are that our schools are struggling. The issues are that we are not paying our teachers enough. The issues are that crime is rising. The issues are that we are leading the charge in pedestrian fatalities. Not something we want to be leading the charge in. I'd rather not be in the charge at all, right? I don't want to be topping that chart. I don't want to be on the chart. These are real issues. The issues are that our seniors and our veterans are having a hard time staying in their homes. We cannot pretend like everything is fine. In order to address a problem, you have to admit that there is a problem. And accountable and transparent leadership will tell you, here's a problem. Here's how I plan to solve the problem. I need your feedback. Help me solve this problem. Let's solve this together. I'm not going to sugarcoat it as a leader. I'm not going to pretend like everything is fine. Everything is not fine. You know that meme with the dog that has like the fire behind it? Uh, yes. and very, like, very He has a little rare. coffee mug and he's like, everything is fine. <laughs> he lives in he lives in East Hampton, you know, the dude who, the guy who created that. that meme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. He must have been inspired by the current administration because we pretend like everything is fine and everything is not fine. Chicopee is not fine fine. We have great bones. We are an amazing community of diverse people. There are also a lot of things that we need to work on, and we need to be able to admit that so that we can work on them. Ward 3 City Councilor Delmarina Lopez, who's running for mayor of Chicopee against incumbent Mayor John View tomorrow on Election Day. NEPM's Nirvani Williams has been covering the Chicopee mayoral race. I leave the final question for the candidate to you. Well, I would really like to know a little bit more about your thoughts on pedestrian and driver safety following the death of a resident getting killed in a multi-car crash in early October. What are your plans to create safer roads for residents? And what do you think the current administration has done so far to help and aid that? Oh, there's a face. <laughs> it was a smirk because when you asked what the current administration has done, I'm like, I'm trying to jog my head and, and my memory and really think about it because I can't think of anything. The current administration has taken credit for what the state legislation has done. The state legislation has given us $50,000 towards pedestrian safety, and that's great, but that's not the current administration's doing. The current administration waited until we had to be extremely reactive rather than proactive. And for months, myself and Councillor Cushane have been advocating 
for pedestrian safety in our neighborhood in Willimansa because we share uh, Chicopee Street, the length of Chicopee Street. Half of it is in his ward and half of it is in mine. During public meetings, you know, we heard the current mayor say things like flashing beacons aren't going to stop cars. And, you know, that's it was a slap in the face to us because the answer from a leader should be we're going to try everything possible, not we're going to already discourage things before they happen. And then when you do it because you realize that you're being, you know, challenged, that there's an election, you suddenly want to take credit for doing these things that you didn't even really believe in. Now we're rushing to do things, right? Like now at the end, like, let's try to put up some flashing beacons. Let's let's try to pretend like we're doing something. But for months, you know, these deaths are on our backs as a city. Residents have been advocating for pedestrian safety for years. You know, we have some residents like Lisa Bienvenue who talks about this at almost every single city council meeting. And this has been happening for years. At ward meetings, we hear this over and over and over. And so the current administration, the the mayor said during one of our debates recently that this all started around Thanksgiving of last year. And I think that that's laughable. This didn't all start around Thanksgiving of last year. Maybe that's the first death in in the series of deaths that we've had. But this started years before that. This started the moment residents started saying that we have an issue that should have been addressed. And so, again, I think as leaders, we need to be proactive rather than reactive. And we should not be having all of these deaths on our street. Del Marina Lopez, city councilor for Ward 3 in Chicopee, the neighborhood where she grew up in Willamancet, running against Mayor John View, the incumbent who's been there since 2020. Election Day is tomorrow. We'll be covering the results as they come in tomorrow night. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me again. Where's the good pizza in Chicopee? There's pizza all over. I will not choose one because that is not what a mayor does. Why? (laughs) Wise decision. But I will tell you where we'll be on election night. We'll be at Rumble Seat. There's pizza there as well. So join us at Rumble Seat on election night. And NEPM's Nirvani Williams will be covering uh, election night as well. And thank you for joining us. See you tomorrow, Narvani. <laughs> Our team did reach out to Mayor John View, the incumbent mayor of Chicopee, seeking re-election, but we were unable to secure a time to talk. However, Nirvani Williams does have an interview with Mayor View that you can listen to right now at NEPM.org. And perhaps we'll have a chance to hear some remarks from him and the other candidates we couldn't schedule tomorrow night during our live election coverage right here on NEPM. And thanks to Nirvani Williams of the NEPM Newsroom for joining and guiding our conversation with Delmarina Lopez. Soon we'll find out how the moon burst out on our cosmic scene with Mr. Universe. And next we'll hear about the many sounds of the Berkshire Jazz Sprawl. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. November 6th through the 12th, the Berkshires will be rife with jazz. It is the second annual Fall Jazz Sprawl, and we are with Edward Bride, chairman of the Pittsfield City Jazz Festival and president of Berkshires Jazz. In 2009, the founders of the Pittsfield J- City Jazz Festival established Berkshire Jazz Inc. as an independent nonprofit organization whose mission is to preserve jazz, America's indigenous art form, and nurture its growth by presenting high quality jazz programs 
foster jazz education and promoting the local jazz scene. An annual highlight has been Jazz in Schools, featuring performances, demonstrations, and discussions by the Andy Kelly Jazz Ambassadors in the schools throughout Berkshire County. Over the years, literally thousands of students have experienced live jazz in the classroom and assembly halls. This local group, which has toured Pittsfield's sister cities abroad, is headed by guitarist and teacher Andy Kelly. School principals and administrators have praised the community commitment of the festival and the positive impact it has on students thanks to generous underwriters. Jazz in Schools is provided at no cost to the school system. And all this week, strolling through the Berkshires is the second annual Fall Jazz Sprawl. Thank you so much for joining us, Ed Bride. Hey, thanks. Good to see you. And I'm glad you talked about Andy at the very beginning. Andy just finished a couple of visits to the schools this fall. And uh, again, as always happens, uh, school administrators are all over themselves at what it does to the students, the joy it brings to them. They'll get up there and start clapping. And of course, usually off off the right beats, but they'll get, <laughs> they'll clap, get to there. Clap on two and four <laughs> no, most right. of the time. No, yes. that's right. They'll get there. <laughs> yes. um, and in, invariably, somebody will say, I want to learn to take lessons. Yeah. And so you got to catch them while they're young. And this is such a happy time for them. So it's, it's wonderful to be doing that. Plus, there's like lots of studies about how music education fosters like further education and students' abilities to learn in general. It conditions the brain for learning. <laughs> and the study of music helps learning in all students' uh, sub-areas, especially the STEM subjects. Yeah, music is math. Yeah, it is. exactly. It's weird yeah. math, but it's math. <laughs> they don't have to understand that it's math. They just like you it, and all of a sudden, them. you know, it's helpful, it's therapeutic, and guess what? It's fun. Music, the one place where 7 and 6 somehow equals 12. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. Yeah. And it is totally okay. How did you shift this into being a nonprofit? I was going to make a wisecrack about we started out being in a profit, there's no money in it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> As a fellow musician, even though I'm you, not you in jazz, right. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I but, get uh, it. That was, it wasn't quite true, but uh, we just started with the idea of having a festival, and it seemed like it was going to be necessary to establish it as uh, a nonprofit. So we got some good underwriting support at the very start. And they liked the idea you know, once, and then all of a sudden, what's what are we going to do for a follow-up act? And so it became an annual ritual of going out to getting grants, keeping in mind that if we were really going to condition audiences and condition the the next generation, we had to do some things in the schools. And I have to credit Andy Kelly for that for that idea. In our first jazz festival, 2005, we had a couple of headline groups and a concert, and he said, Ed, you know, we could have some of the local guys play in the, the bars and so forth before the concert. And that's really what turned it into a festival. Yeah. People were mm-hmm. streaming out the doors. They couldn't, and, and so it was a wonderful thing to experience. So we had the local musicians playing in the, in the clubs and then named groups playing in the halls. And then after about two or three years of that, the restaurants started complaining to us. They said, you know, you're taking the people out of the restaurants for your concerts. And, you know, we want to keep them around for dessert or for another drink or something like that. So, well, that's sort of right. So we we conceived, we split this festival into two weekends. And so the first weekend was generally, at the beginning, was on Columbus Day weekend. And we'd have what we call the jazz crawl, where people would go from club to club. And then the following weekend, we'd have the headline concerts. And that lasted un- until new COVID happened. And yeah. So we split it. We, we missed one year of the festival. And then the following year, we're going to miss it again. Let's just put it off for six months. So we put it into April. So the festival is now in April, part of Jazz Appreciation Month. But we still have that two-weekend format with the jazz crawl on one weekend and the headline weekend 
uh, the following weekend, and in between we have a Prodigy concert where we feature a young musician who hasn't been recorded yet. Oh, wow. I think someday will be a force in jazz. Oh, that's awesome. That so that's, that's the movement. So when Andy Werba, so to you know, fast forward to now 2022, last year, Andy Werba said, you know, there's a lot of jazz that still goes on in the fall, even though the festival is no longer there. And he conceptualized this idea of, of highlighting how much jazz is there and actually adding to it. And he said, well, it's not really a crawl. you got some in Lenox, some in Pittsfield, some around in Stockbridge. It's a slightly longer so, crawl. Yeah. yeah, so we called it a sprawl. <laughs> so, all right, so jazz is sprawling throughout the Berkshires. I love it. Yeah, and this year he decided to, instead of having, again, four or five places competing on the same night, to sprawl it through the whole week. So we go from Monday to Sunday, a different place every night with a different jazz group every night. And some of them ticketed, some of them uh, no cover charge, something for everybody, every taste, and uh, small and large venues. So it's it's really quite an idea, and hats off to Andy Werber. Andy is a, is a uh, younger generation. Yeah, he's probably... Well, I won't say how old he is. He's a lot <laughs> younger than I am. Uh, he taught at uh, the Darrell School in New Lebanon for about 10 years. He's a, a bass player, a musician, a leader, and he's got that entrepreneurial spirit. We're speaking with Ed Bride, the chairman of the Pittsfield City Jazz Festival and president of Berkshire's Jazz. There is the second annual Fall Jazz Sprawl happening all this week through Sunday. What are some highlights of well, it's all highlights. It's seven <laughs> days of yep. really good stuff from yep. what I can see on your list. Yep. But what's a name on this list of somebody performing this week that you'd really like more folks to be aware of? Well, I think the Benny Cohn is, is a treasure of the Berkshires. Ben is a wonderful piano player. He plays all genres. He can he writes. He can sing. He's, he can do a great Dr. John set. I'll tell oh, you, I'll tell you oh, that. Nice. And he can play any kind of music. And he's running a jam session on Friday night on the on the 10th. With our no, friends at Hot Plate Brewing, which we've had on a yes, bunch of times. Yes, indeed. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and, and so I think that um, people always walk away from Benny's performances with their head nodding saying what a what a treat what a talent he is so i think that uh, that's something that everybody should see uh, the night before on thursday at the gateways inn a posh inn in downtown lennox you have this one a wonderful vocalist natalia bernal with her husband jason ennis a guitarist who again is a guitarist who can play any kind of music uh, brazilian which this will tend to be that kind of latinx music jazz rock uh, new new world third world new age uh, everything and so there there's a no cover charge at either of those events on thursday or friday jason ennis and natalia bernal at the at the gateways in in lennox and on friday the hot plate with benny Cohn. and, and this whole week uh, is really one thing after another and then concluding on sunday with a, a concert by the django festival all-stars tell us a little bit about yeah. the django festival this is a, a group uh, well the the django new york festival has been going on for about Oh, 15 or 18 years now. It takes place in Birdland. It's uh, five or six days. They have a different guest artist each night. The core group is a group from France. I'm not all of them even speak English. I'm practicing up my welcome speech so I can say, bienvenue. <laughs> bienvenue. <laughs> <A> la musique. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, Dorado Schmidt and his sons Amati and Samson and three other musicians playing the music of Django Reinhardt. And this is a group that uh, the New York Times, the LA Times, the, the, the jazz magazines all say they're the highlight of every festival they ever appear at. Mm. I mean, who, who doesn't like Django Reinhardt, right? Yeah, I mean, that style is just unbelievable. And, and you can, and every every 
straight ahead jazz group play something from Django. They'll do mm-hmm. one or two numbers, but you don't really often hear a whole night of that music. And that's what we'll have at Barrington Stage on Sunday. I believe it'll be a sold out concert. It's pretty approaching that right now as we speak. So. Oh, so so get in now if you if, yeah. and see if you still can get into it. <laughs> yeah, go to BerkshiresJazz.org. That'll give you the pointer to the box office, and it'll you'll know right when you get there if it's sold out. We'll, so, but I'm I'm confident that that will be the case. In which case, we'll have to have them back next year. But uh, oh so darn, like, darn it, <laughs> yeah, nothing like the first time though, right? <laughs> Ed Bright of Berkshire's Jazz. How did you actually get into jazz? Well, what happened in in grammar school? Do you remember records? I do. <laughs> yes. There's a I, resurgence I, of them right, right now. Yeah, yeah there is bunch. actually more vinyl. More vinyl is sold now than CDs. Mm-hmm. Of course, they don't beat streaming, but that's another story. But at any rate, um, we'd be going after uh, after school. We'd walk to a buddy's house. You can't do that anymore these days either, right? <laughs> you can <laughs> walk home from school. Well, and and uh, we'd be playing records, and I'd be listening to you know Bill Haley and Elvis Presley. Those were the hits of the day. And somebody put on Stan Kenton, mm. and I can remember the day it happened. I can remember it like it was uh, last week. And uh, it was Kenton and Hi-Fi, you know, intermission riff, peanut vendor, the, that ilk. And this, the sound captured me, and the trombone sound that he had was, was unique. And that uh, changed my listening habits for life. I went on to uh, be active uh, in the radio in high school and college. I was the student chairman of the Villanova Intercollegiate Jazz Festival, where we were befriended by Stan Kenton, my idol. He was already my idol, and I'd seen that he was a mentor to the Notre Dame Jazz Festival. Notre Dame was the first collegiate jazz festival ever, and we were the second at Villanova. And he came on board as our chief advisor. He came down, and he was the host of the public broadcast, public television broadcasting of it. And it was a wonderful relationship over the years. And so when I left college, it seemed like that would be it. But uh, one of Stan's educators who who, uh, helped found the National Association for Jazz Education, a guy named Clem DeRosa, stayed active in in running organizations. He got me involved in a group he called American Jazz Venues, and uh, they started up a big band called the American Jazz Repertory Orchestra, asked me to be on their board. And so so I got back into it that way, and so it was a natural when we moved to Pittsfield and... uh, I got my eyes on the Colonial Theater yeah. and, and so forth. And so <laughs> things started happening, and uh, and so it's been it's a wonderful ride. That was 2005. And now that we've got Avery Sharp doing uh, Jazz oh, a la Mode on Fridays, you. Yes, you know, indeed. and that you have Radio Chops, yes, if he needs yeah. a week off, maybe we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll be con- happy convince the powers that be to bring in. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I have it's been it's been years since I've done that, but I, I certainly enjoy listening to Tom. Yeah, Tom Rainey, the <laughs> yeah. Jazz Legend of He's Jazz, the man, here. Yep. Mr. Jazz. Ed Bride, however, is the president of Berkshire's Jazz. Who's mission is to preserve jazz, and I, as somebody who for the first time finally got to go to New Orleans a couple weeks ago, yeah. went to preservation halls. Yep. That is, uh, it was an incredible experience, and I'm glad that this is happening in Pittsfield, in our area as well. The second annual Fall Jazz Sprawl happening November 6th through 12th. Thank you so much for telling us about your event and your attempts to continue this awesome <laughs> yeah. legacy. Well, thank you. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. No problem. Come and on, if, see us. Will do. And if you want more information, head over to www.berkshiresjazz.org. Thank you. Up next, we'll find out if when two heavenly bodies love each other very much, sometimes you get a moon. I don't think that's exactly how it works. I'm sure Professor Salman Hamid will let us know one way or the other. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 and EPM. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Have some more kitchen table astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe. 
at your kitchen table here in Amherst. But first off, you were like the bell of the ball at the NEPM <laughs> open house that we had the other day. Everybody was psyched to meet you, including NEPM uh, reporter Nancy Cohen, who spent a great deal of time talking with you. Hey, I was so excited to be invited over there. And <laughs> no, that was, a, that was a great event and a really fantastic building. And I also took a tour and saw where the, actually the magic happens. Yes. That was great and wonderful jazz performance. Yeah, with our new jazz host Friday nights, Avery Sharp. Come on. He's that great. was really cool. So yeah, no, it was it was really fantastic. You can come to things like that in the future, listener, if you support NEPM. It's made possible from listeners like you. I love saying that. Anyway, we're gonna talk about Earth's baby, the moon. The moon is the Earth's baby because we birthed the moon. <laughs> right? Um I don't know who we is in this. We meaning Earth. Well, okay, all right. Uh, yes, that that is kind of true. I actually find this interesting because always you can think about, hey, if you see something, you go like, where did it come from? And of course, we see the moon all the time, or at least when it's in the sky, visible to us. And you would ask the question, hey, how did it form? Yeah, where do babies come from? And it is a surprisingly difficult question to answer, uh, unlike the baby question. The baby uh, question is a little bit easier. Storks. <laughs> right, exactly. Up until the Apollo missions, there were a couple of theories about the formation of the moon. Mercury doesn't have a moon, Venus doesn't have a moon, and Mars has small moons. Our moon compared to the Earth is actually quite big. So the question was, how did it get formed? Because it doesn't fit in. It's, it's almost an exception to that. And there were ideas that maybe it got created with the Earth, but there were problems with that particular model. Uh, there were thought that maybe it was captured, like for example, Mars. Uh, Mars's moons are thought to have been captured. Uh, Meaning stuff is just floating around in space and it gets caught in the orbit because of gravity, because of how big the planet is. It gets wrapped up in its orbit. Right, and, and that didn't make sense. And Jupiter's moons were formed together with it, just like a solar system to a certain degree. But that model didn't work because how could one big body got formed. And so we actually didn't know. But with Apollo astronauts going to the moon and bringing back a lot of rocks from there, when they analyzed it, it looked like that the moon was made up of similar material as the crust of the Earth. And that suggested, well, perhaps there is a connection to that. Now, what most astronomers think that our moon was formed when a large Mars-sized body, uh, and astronomers then given it a name, Thea, uh, which is, I think, the mother of the moon in, in the mythology, uh, when it crashed into the Earth very early on, four and a half billion years ago, and it slammed and it was a glancing angle, and the material went up in orbit, debris, and that debris coalesced because of gravity and formed the moon. It's also called, I think, the big whack theory, <laughs> because... You know, it's kind of cool. Yeah, got whacked by a Mars-sized right. object. Exa exactly. Out of the Earth's body, a I baby is it, born called the moon. We call it also the Sopranos theory, the big whack. Don't stop. But anyway, so yeah, so that is the idea behind that, like, you know, that early on in the solar system, a large body collided. And somebody might say, well, what if somebody like this come in today and hit us? Well, you don't have those free-floating large bodies today. It was early in the solar system where you have proto-Earth, uh, and you have these protoplanets basically roaming around. And sometimes, yeah, they could actually crash into each other. That's how our Earth grew into a certain degree as well, by accumulating material. By accumulation, it means things crashing into it. But occasionally, you would have a big body crash into that too. So that's the existing idea 
And, and it's phenomenal. Things happen on a very short time frame. So when we think about, oh, how long did it take for the moon to form into the shape that it is at? Up until recently, people actually thought that it would take perhaps a few years to maybe a hundred years, which still is very short. But then last year, new supercomputer simulations have come out. They actually think that it all happened within a few hours. What? And if you just think, that's just insane, right? And so people are still trying to figure out, and this happened a long time ago, obviously. You are trying to piece together how exactly it happened. And not to mention that earlier on, the moon was much closer to the Earth. And slowly it has been going farther and farther away. And so that also has been taking place. But the reason why I'm talking to you, Monty, here, is because the question was, what happened to Thea? Did it just go away? Is there any evidence for Thea? Meaning this Mars-sized object that hit the Earth, grazed it, and shot the moon out of us, and then maybe even in hours formed the moon as we know it. Exactly, and now it looks like maybe there is an evidence that there is Thea inside the Earth. Whoa! And so this is actually pretty cool. Uh, there is a, a Caltech geodynamic researcher, uh, Qian Yuan, who who is the lead author on a paper that just got published in the journal Nature. And so people can actually figure out the structure of the Earth through seismic waves. When there are earthquakes and the way these uh, waves basically go from one side, these shock waves from one side of the planet to the other, how long it takes to reach different places, you can actually get a lot of information about what is inside the Earth, what is the structure of the Earth, because you cannot dig through it. And so back, I think, in the 80s, people knew that there were these two slightly higher density objects that were there. And they gave uh, the name, one was uh, under West Africa, uh, and one was under the Pacific Ocean. These were just like pieces that were higher density and they were like sticking out in our mantle. Like, you know, in the place between the mantle and the core, they were just sticking out. And uh, one, they gave the name Tuzo after, uh, after a Canadian geophysicist who was actually uh, explaining sort of like plate tectonics. And uh, the one under the Pacific Ocean, they gave the name Jason after Jason Morgan, another scientist. Not the Argonauts. <laughs> Not the Argonauts. Or Jason Voorhees. So you have these two pieces, and they are located close to about 1,800 miles under the surface. And they are sticking out a few hundred miles above at the place where the core and the mantle meets. So the question is, what is that? And now uh, this paper has come out that says that actually that may be the remnant of Thea. Through computer modeling, they actually showed that Mars-sized object Thea, it had a slightly higher density. And this was again one of those things that was a puzzle because on the moon, in some places, or some material had a higher density uh, compared to the Earth's crust. And so people were wondering, what is that? And so they expected Thea to have a higher density and that material a lot of that material fell into the Earth. Only 10% of the one that made the moon. But rest of it actually went to the Earth, it mixed in, but over the period of time, because it has slightly different density, it gelled together into these two giant blobs, which are the size of a continent. And each of them is comparable in volume to the moon. And they exist inside the Earth. So and this comparable volume thing that's a different density smacks into the Earth, shoots up, similarly volumed density out as the moon from the Earth and then buries itself 
under the mantle, between the mantle and the core. As far as I understand, it's it's like it's actually mostly mixes in to the earth. A lot of the material in the crust area just mixes together and becomes part of earth's minerals. But some of the material sinks in. And over the period of time, because there are plumes that bring it up and down, it solidifies into these two large bodies. It sounds like the Jurassic armored mud balls that we were learning about a couple <laughs> weeks ago on the show where these like awesome things that rolled down riverbeds in the Jurassic period and armored themselves with riverbed stones are embedded in the rock structure. And we only have these kind of things here in Massachusetts, as far as we know. Thanks, Professor Richard Little, for bringing that up. This is like... On a global scale, these are our Jurassic armored mud balls that created the moon. I, it's just fun to, say mean, Jurassic, is, it's fun to say Jurassic armored mud balls. <laughs> I agree. Armored mud balls. What's an armored mud ball? Yeah. Right? Well, we don't want our mud balls unarmored. Yeah, Jurassic armored mud balls theory. I don't know how similar it is, but I mean, hey, why not? I mean, you know, right. uh, but this is just really fascinating that you can actually start to figure out what is inside the earth. And again, we cannot go and dig 1,800 miles under the surface to see what is really out there. But to me, what's interesting is, one, that we can actually figure out through these earthquakes, through these seismic waves, the structure of material that is in there. And you find that there is a little bit of oddities in there, Tuzo and Jason. And then you figure out, wait a minute, perhaps we can figure out how Tuzo and Jason are related to the formation of the moon. And all of that, it just requires amazing imagination and then amazing mathematics to have those simulations run. And you can tell what happened four and a half billion years ago. And so next time if somebody asks, hey, I see the moon. Hey, where did it come from? And the answer is storks. No, I mean, no, <laughs> Thea, Thea. You mean a large body crashed and we also know that that large body now lives inside the earth. I love it. It is a baby. It's our <laughs> baby. Tomorrow is election day. A quick follow-up statement from incumbent mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegardner, who took umbrage with what her competitor said on our show. She says, Councilor Ginny DeSorger asserts that I lacked good judgment in making a 3% increase in the fiscal year of 24 school operating budget versus the 10.37 that was requested by the school committee. I abstained from that vote. On the contrary, it was my fiduciary responsibility to exercise good judgment, which I did in ensuring that the overall uh, fiscal budget, as presented to the city council, was a balanced budget, which is required by Massachusetts general law. Her statement shows that she lacks a basic understanding of municipal finance and the often difficult budget decisions that have to be made by mayors to avoid jeopardizing the overall operating budget of the city. She continues, on police staffing, the councilor asserts that I lacked good judgment in allowing the temporary suspension of the midnight shift at the police department. The real lack of judgment was on the part of Councillor DeSorger when she voted to defund the police by $425,000 for fiscal year 23 without inquiring of the police chief and the deputy police chief what the consequences would be. Unwise and uninformed budget reductions in order to send a message have consequences. We're going to have other statements, other politicians, and more election coverage. As many of the voices as we can get on the air tomorrow on the show, as well as tomorrow night. Indeed, uh, but not for the whole thing. We will also be talking with Caitlin Cruz of Palante and Holyoke about building equity for that city's youth. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413. All politics all the time. 